It's Behind the Headlines. Uh, welcome. I'm Joe Shaw. I am the co-host of the show. I'm the executive editor of the Express News Group. We publish the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, and the website's 27east.com and sagharborexpress.com. My co-host is Bill Sutton. He's the managing editor of the Express News Group. Hey, Bill. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, everybody. Tremendous panel today. Uh, we have Joe Workmeister, who's an editor up at the uh, Times Review Media Group. Hey, Joe. Hey, how's it going? Good to have you, as always. Uh, Vera Chinise, who covers the East End for Newsday. Hey, Vera, how are you? Hey, good. Hi, Joe. Good to have you. And uh, first timer today, uh, Carissa Katz, who is the managing editor of the East Hampton Star. Carissa, good morning. Morning, Joe. Good to be here. Thanks for having a, having time for us today. We appreciate it. So the, the big news this week that everybody's talking about is that it's one year since the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention officially declared COVID-19 a pandemic. And what a year. Uh, I think we can all agree it was a unique year, uh, one that we didn't see coming. And I think we probably will remember for the rest of our lives. Uh, it Life changed in a way, in a lot of fundamental ways that I I don't think we saw coming. Uh, how how have you guys? I, I actually want to you know. Hey, the show's behind the headlines, so let's talk about how it's affected you guys as as news reporters, as journalists who are out there in the community. Uh, we are considered essential workers, and I think that was an interesting thing that was sort of brought to light. Uh, during this pandemic. And I think we served an important role during this time. But uh, Vera, it was a real challenge. And, and I would think for someone like you who has so much ground to cover and has to, you know, trying to report the news in a, in a time like this when, when it's tough to get around to talk to people and there's nothing like talking to people face to face, it's a real challenge. Yeah. I mean, it, for many reasons this year, um, being a reporter this year was very challenging. So for me, my beat is um, town government in Southampton, in East Hampton and Shelter Island. Um, so a big challenge was, you know, how do I find news stories right now that are, that are going to be relevant for all Long Islanders to read when um, it feels like the world's falling apart? Um you know, like what kind of what kind of town government stories are going to pique their interests. Um, but it actually turned out that so the big story from the South Fork was the population influx. You know, mm -hmm. um, that was kind of a shock um, in the way life changed out here um, for everybody. And then, um, you know, another story after that would be, um, you know, how the seasonal businesses handled this and how the summer was different than any other summer. Um, there were so many so, facets to, to the, the yeah, they're really, faced. yeah. Yeah. Um, but definitely not seeing people in person. That's, you know, you, there's so much you lose from that. Um, yeah. Carissa, I, I mean, I think everybody sort of retreated uh, to, to their safe places. And that makes it hard for us to report because, because it's difficult to, to sort of get everybody's take on, on how they're dealing with the, the crisis. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it, in some ways you could use social media as your new main street, um, to the extent that, that that's possible and not everybody's on social media, but you kind of, I found that, um, we were, probably looking even more to see what was really sparking conversation um, on Facebook and Twitter. And 
and um, and then looking to to find those people and follow up in person. But the whole aspect of everything being remote and also early on needing to protect your reporters who are out there um, in a way that editors aren't, um, that was a, a big concern too. So it's, it's, almost, it's almost unreal looking back at those early days and kind of navigating how to, how to, cover, um, how to cover what was happening from in some way, everybody being dis in disparate locations and um, wanting them to stay safe. It's a challenging enough job to start with. And then you add these layers of a lot of Zoom meetings and things like that, that especially early on were, were real challenges. Joe, uh, one of the things we talked about, the influx of people to the East End, um, it caused some stress, uh, but I think we sort of dealt with it pretty well. Is that fair enough to say that, that I think the region sort of uh, uh, absorbed the, the influx of population. I mean, I, I think we're still seeing the results of that, but it, but it didn't cause quite a crisis. Like I think some people thought it might have. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I would think, you know, one of the big concerns when this um, first hit, you know, you were looking at businesses and thinking, you know, how is any business going to survive? They're going to have to close down. You know, they're not going to have people coming in and out and are they going to be able to adapt and, and restaurants in particular, you know, on the North Fork, we, you know, we were really keeping a close eye on, you know, were they going to be able to survive? And I think part of that, you know, influx of people coming out here, you know, one, it's a lot of people who have money. So, that's a group of people who can easily be buying, you know, to go dinners from restaurants and, and, um, you know, we're able to kind of keep those, uh, places going. And, and I think what we found a lot of restaurants actually did, you know, okay, considering all the circumstances and, you know, now a year later, you know, came out and, uh, are still, still going and, and, you know, some restaurants did pretty well actually, which was, um, you know, kind of amazing as, you know, and, you know, I think, part of that definitely is just having more people out here. Um, you know, obviously there are negatives to it, you know, that the housing market's crazy, you know, um, you know, it's tough, tough for renters now, you know, if you're somebody who was renting a house and, and, you know, now maybe where a place you were living is going to be going on the market. Now you got to find somewhere else to live. And, you know, that's happened to some people who have, you know, have lived in a home, uh, for, you know, quite a number of years on the North Fork that, you know, who they were renting from someone and now that person's looking to cash in and sell their house. So, you know, there's so many different variables to it. And uh, it's, yeah. Everybody's, everybody's house value seems to have gone up, which can be beneficial if you own a house. Uh, it's not so beneficial if you're renting or looking to buy a house out here, that's for sure. Um, I do think the one, the one silver lining in all this is that um, when I order out, I feel like I'm doing this something civically positive, positive these days. And so that's the economy. I, yeah. I feel, I feel like I'm, I'm doing my share. It's not just a matter of not having to, to cook one night. Uh, we're actually doing our, doing our, our best. Um, Carissa. So let's turn the talk to vaccines, which obviously are on a lot of people's minds right now. East Hampton has really done some amazing things in getting vaccines out to, to the people in their population who are eligible right now. Uh, they, they had a terrific weekend uh, last weekend, and, and they've, they've really uh, done a remarkable job, haven't they? Yeah, they have. I mean, I have to admit, when they first said that they were going to seek volunteers to set up their own vaccine clinic, I was skeptical because I had seen how you know, we all had seen how hard it was for anybody to get vaccines. And the federal government was allocating such a limited number to New York State in general. So 
when they managed to pull off that first vaccine clinic, I was blown away that, you know, they, they collected the volunteers, they did it. And I think they did it on really short order as well. And the same for the vaccination clinics that they did last weekend, the one on Friday and on Saturday, I think they found out on Thursday, they were getting a thousand plus doses and managed to pull together a vaccine clinic by the next morning and vaccinated over a thousand people that day. So I've been impressed by that effort. And, um, you know, the volunteers that have turned out to help with it, um, pretty amazing, you know? And I think we're seeing more and more of the, um, you know, municipalities, school districts getting in on the vaccine distribution, which I think is a great thing to get more shots in arms. But mm-hmm. I think East Hampton kind of led the way with that, um, at least here on the East End. And, you know. and I think we had some news also, Bill, this week about Southampton that uh, it's big news that a new uh, mass vaccination site run by New York State is going to open up at Southampton, uh, Stony Brook, Southampton College campus. That's a big step uh, and uh, probably uh you know, I know uh, President Biden last night announced that he wants to have everybody eligible to get a shot by May 1st, if that's possible in each of the states. Having the vaccination sites set up in time to be able to to provide those is going to be essential. And that was a big step in getting more vaccines to the, to the East End, I think. Yeah, I think it was described as a as a game changer that, you know, the, the I mean, I think before before this happens, the the furthest mass vaccination site was actually Stony Brook University, where a lot of people were going. This is going to make it a lot easier. And as you say, you know, the president, I, I think what he what he said was everybody will be able to be eligible to get an appointment um, mm-hmm. by, by that date. So <clears throat> as you look at opening up, you know, vaccinations to not just the select groups that it's been now the first responders and, and people of a certain age and, and all that, when you open it up to the general public, you're going to have this rush of, of appointments and, and people. So it, it's great to have that facility close by. People aren't going to have to be driving, um, you know, way up the island. Or it, And I think that'll just open up that freeze on appointments everybody's talking about when they go online to make an appointment or to state site and, and there's just no appointments available and you know it all comes back to to distribution and and how many how many um you know how much of the vaccine we're going to be able to have out here but but i think certainly it'll make it a much easier process as uh, as there's as the line gets longer of, of people who are eligible to get the shot you know it's interesting if you go to the state site it used to be that there were four or five sites that you you could look at and see if there were vaccines available and, and four of them were somewhere uh, upstate generally or or in the capital region now there are probably a dozen to 15 sites and that opening that up means i think there'll be less of a funnel as you have the bulk of the population start to move forward to get vaccines there are a lot more to go to and at the same time, the, the governor, I mean, the, the state is 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 opening up, um, you know, a host of of the pop up sites at, mm-hmm. at different community organizations, churches, um, schools, that type of thing. And I think that's going to help a lot, too. And 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 will help in, in addressing the need to get the vaccine out to, um, you know, to, to at risk populations um, that, that may not be able to you know, to get on the state site and get, you know, get out to Stony Brook or, you know, Southampton, Stony Brook or whatever. And I think that's a great thing too. 
I just like to let the listeners know that East Hampton Town has a uh, its own pre-registration website, right. eh So um, as they become available to the town, they'll be pulling from that list. So um, that's how I, you know, the town stepped into a void there and and yeah. gave people a place to go to. Southampton, uh, Stony Brook, Southampton Hospital also has a portal now uh, where you can sign up. It's only for people sixty-five and over. Uh, actually, I think it's 60 and over now. I think that changed this week, uh, but it's not for people with comorbidities. It's just for older folks, uh, but you can sign up at their website as well. Joe, how's the, the distribution been in Riverhead and on the North Fork? Uh, uh, we had your colleague Ambrose Clancy on last week, and he talked about a terrific clinic that they held on Shelter Island. Uh, has it been pretty good throughout the rest of the North Fork and, and Riverhead as well? Yeah, we, you know, we've started to see more uh, access coming recently. Uh, last week, uh, for the first time, uh, Riverhead uh, Town had a site set up at the senior center. So there was a, a four-day period there where uh, I think it was about a thousand doses were distributed. And you know, they also have a a, a link on the website uh, for people to pre-register for when um, you know vaccines may become available. Um, so, you know, so that was a big step there. I think that was the first you know in Riverhead Town itself. Um, uh, location that we've seen. Um, so, you know, obviously the officials there were pretty excited about that. And in South Old Town um, at the um, uh, recreation department uh, a, a week ago, they had uh, a pop-up site again with about a thousand doses. So, you know, a lot of people were really excited about that. And then um, yesterday they were able to do it again. And so, you know, kind of really, really keeping it going now. It was interesting. We had we had seen the link go out uh, for people to sign up for that um, pop up in Peconic um, for, for yesterday um, around Tuesday night. And we posted a link out to it. And at the time, I think it was about there was maybe about 800 appointments available and you could see the number, you know, how many were available. And it was it was interesting. You, you could sit, just sit there and click refresh and then just kind of see the number going down because their appointments are you know, going so fast. And, um, you, know, you know, before you know it, you know, they were they were all taken. So, you know, it shows the demand is obviously still there. You know, it's, you know, people are still trying to get appointments um, and. You know the pharmacies out here, CVS, uh, Mattituck is a location. That, you know they've had it for uh, I think a few weeks at least now. Um, you know so, and I think the Southampton site will also be good for people. You know in River Town for definitely on the North Fork. So you know we're seeing a lot of different uh, different avenues now for people to be able to try to get the vaccine. Just good. It, it does feel like it's loosening up, right? I mean, I know a month ago, I mean, it, you know. Um, it, it would just seem impossible. Everybody was saying it was just impossible to get an appointment to get a shot or, or whatever. And it just does feel like more and more people. I, I, I mean, in, in my circle of, of you know people that I know, just the, the number of people who've been able to, to get a, a vaccine. And one staff member yesterday who ended up going you know to uh, uh, to the to the drugstore in, in, in East Hampton just to try to set up an appointment. And they said, well, we have right. one we have one dose left. Yeah. And, and got really lucky, won the lotto, I guess, and, and you know, and, and got a vaccination yesterday. So I think you're hearing more of those stories now. It just feels like we've turned, um, yeah. you know, the story's turned a little bit. Yeah, and, you, and what's, I was just going to say, and, you know, you don't um, – you don't have to, you know, make the appointment for yourself. Someone else can make it for you. So, um, you know, like my wife's on a hunt. She got like addicted to try to find appointments for people. So she's like on the website, you know, going crazy and like find an appointment. It's like, all right, I got one. Who, you know, who do we know? Like right. make a phone call. Like, and, uh, you know, so if you, you know, if you're kind of 
savvy in that sense and, you know, can take, take the time, uh, you know, you can definitely help other people out too, you know, especially if you have, you know, older, um, older relatives, you know, may not be that tech savvy, you know, you can definitely get on there and, and try to find appointments for other people. What a difference a couple of weeks makes. I, I have a 70 year old golf buddy who was complaining. I can't get on, I can't get on. And I said, no, no, go to the website for the hospital right now and and he was able to get a vaccine that night because wow. he was able to get an appointment at the pop-up clinic because he was age eligible. So Vera, I feel like covering the region for Newsday, you have a little more of a global view of of how the whole region is is dealing with this. We we had this view in the middle of it that the South Fork in particular was not getting the the number of vaccines that that we we thought was reasonable early on that's really changed in the last couple of weeks how's it been generally throughout the region and and in suffolk county in general um it seems like i'm sure people in other regions felt the same way um if you look at the percentages i think um uh, nassau county might be like a little bit higher um, of people vaccinated than um, statewide. So uh, maybe it's a little bit better there. Um, but Suffolk but, uh, County in general has been been sort of keeping pace. It well, it's seems interesting. like it, yeah, on par, yeah. It, it's interesting that, that Vera says that. I mean, I think everybody at the time thought that they were the ones that were, were losing out. And certainly on the east end, we're farther out on, on the island and it did feel like that. But, you know, I have relatives in North Carolina, relatives in South Carolina, relatives upstate who are all complaining about the same thing, that they couldn't get on the sites, they couldn't get appointments, you know, um, and all that. And I think while, while it was a, a legitimate concern that people on the east end, especially people as far east as Montauk, who would have to yeah. try to drive to, to Stony Brook or whatever, that there were issues there. But I think it was probably a universal feeling that that as I mean, it was a slow rollout. I mean, the, the supply wasn't there and the government was trying to, you know, to, to try, you know, to apportion it to, to different areas. I think everybody felt the, the same way. But, you know, again, now now maybe that's loosening up a little. Yeah. You know, something else I wanted to uh, mention was um, the county um, did a clinic on Fisher's Island. Uh, and for, for people who don't know where Fisher's Island is, it's a small <laughs> island off the um, coast of Connecticut, but it's in South Old Town. Um, and a few weeks ago, they did um, a first dose there and they vaccinated something like 250 people. But the funny thing is, if you vaccinate 250 people on Fisher's Island, that's like 70% of the year round community. So they could possibly be the first community in uh, on Long Island to be, to reach herd immunity. You herd know? immunity. Like there you go. Yeah. Right. Isn't that funny? Um, it's a shelter Island. Yeah, I they're going to be throwing parties on Fisher's Island. Island. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we talked about that with, with Ambrose. Too. They Island had too. so much success on shelter Island too. And I mean, even we talked about this week, the, the effort in East Hampton town was such that they were able to get about 10% of the population vaccinated in two days. Carissa, that's just a remarkable yeah. achievement considering yeah. all the challenges. And the, the website that Vera mentioned, I think that was a, um, is really key to, to the efficiency of the operation too. Um, so that rather than um, people, you know, going on, as you were talking about, going on at all hours, trying to get an appointment, you pre-register. And if you're eligible, 
they contact you and say, we have a dose for you. So that was, it worked a little bit differently with the Friday clinic with, that was in partnership with South, Stony Brook Southampton Hospital. But at the same time, you had people from the town calling to say, you registered on our website, we've got a dose for you, come in if you can. And I think that was, uh, that was kind of the model of, of an efficient system is instead of, you know, I, I describe it, I used to go to Grateful Dead shows back in college and I described it. <laughs> exactly. It was, like, it was like harder to get a, you know, harder to get a vaccine than it was to get a front row seat at a Dead show in 1989. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I'm it, just it amazes me that, that it, I, I don't know why it didn't start off that way. That just makes sense. And, yeah. and I've told this story before my father and, in Myrtle Beach, he did. He he registered with his county. You know, he filled out whatever he needed to fill out, and they called him a week later and said, "Can you come in next week on a certain day?" And he did, and and it was done. I don't I don't know. I don't understand why from from day one in the early yeah. you know distribution, it was everybody racing to try to get online or or to call the hotline or or whatever, and it just created an, an inequity. It's a much better model. That's one of the things that Biden um, hinted at in his speech last night, trying to revamp how um, how people get their appointments for vaccines. And it, you know, I was kind of hopeful that it, it will shift to that model with the federal government getting involved. I mean, sometimes the federal government gets involved and it's fantastic. Sometimes it works the other way. Right. But if it switched to a situation where instead of scrambling to to find that appointment and being in a race with everybody else you're getting contacted that there's a dose for you it takes a certain level of anxiety out of it too because a lot of people you know it's it's really hard for a lot of you know older people to or people who are you know if you're working full-time you're not around a computer how are you going to be constantly searching for that you know vaccine dose that you need I feel like we learned a lot of lessons and I think we're going to need those lessons because people have short memories that this was obviously uh, unprecedented since the, the turn of the last century, uh, something at this level. But we've had um, six to eight outbreaks of viruses <clears throat> in the last 15 to 20 years that that had the potential to get a lot worse, but were dealt with effectively. And we're going to need to know how to do that moving forward because, you know, new viruses are going to pop up as well. Uh, this is Behind the Headlines uh, on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw of the Express News Group. Uh, my co-host is Bill Sutton of the Express News Group. Our journalists on our panel today, Joe Workmeister of the Times Review Media Group, Carissa Katz of the East Hampton Star, and uh, Vera Chin of Newsday. Um, Joe, you, you guys had a story this week about um, sort of the darker side of, of all of this, uh, about a situation that happened with one of the care facilities up your way. Uh, tell us about that story. Yeah, you know, uh, the family, uh, Calverton family uh, recently uh, got a letter in the mail um, from the Acadia Center in Riverhead um, Nursing Home Rehab Facility and uh, asking how their uh, relative had you know, enjoyed or, you know, ha how her visit went um, at the facility. And several weeks earlier, she, you know, she had died of COVID-19. Oh. And, uh, you know, it was, um, she was an older woman, 81, and had been admitted into there. You know, she had fallen, gotten hurt, and um, had gone there for some rehab and you know, was tested for the virus before she went in, tested negative, and then... Um, you know, ended up getting sick, had to go back to Peconic Bay Hospital, 
got tested and sure enough, um, to positive for COVID-19 and, um, ends, ends up, uh, you know, dying uh, shortly after. And, um, so, you know, you know, so it's just you know, kind of a sad case of, you know, we we I think we're sort of hoping that like nursing homes have kind of, kind of passed, um, you know, the worst of it, but, you know, as we saw, this was, you know, people were still getting infected, you know, late last year into the beginning of this year, um, you know, before the vaccine rollout really started. And, um, you know, it's sad just thinking about some of these people who got infected, you know, that was so close to when the vaccine was going to start getting rolled out for some of these people. And, uh, and it just raises questions, you know, about what, you know, what kind of, um, you know, how competent the facilities are when you have instances like this pop up where you're getting a letter home, um, where clearly they're not, you know, figuring out who, who's who and, and making sure that they know, you know, obviously we don't need to send a letter home to someone who uh, is now uh, deceased. And um, it's a, it's a little alarming about the level of uh, attention being paid and when right, something like right. that can slip through. I, it also brings to mind one of the, the, the things that I found, most remarkable through this crisis was when the vaccine started to roll out. It was amazing to me that they didn't really seem able to use the existing infrastructure to get those shots to the elderly through through existing places like senior centers and, and nursing homes. Nursing homes were obviously at the top of the priority list, and I think they got vaccines. But it, it did seem like it was a real challenge just to get these shots to, to the places where they were needed most. And, and a lot of elderly folks were left out in the cold early on. Uh, yeah, I think there's still a lot uh, that needs to be kind of looked at with, you know, the nursing homes and handling of, um, of COVID-19. You know, so much of the attention was just has been on, you know, the numbers with, you know, the governor's office and health department, um, you know, not disclosing the number of deaths between you know, the nursing homes and the hospitals. And that's been such a big thing. And, you know, everyone's still talking about that, you know, March order from last year. Um, but, you know, what we've seen is, you know, people were still dying in nursing homes well after that, you know, well after the, you know, May directive that kind of reversed that. And, it, you know, who's really looking into, you know, what happened in these nursing homes, you know, beyond just trying to, you know, put all the blame on uh, the governor and, you know, not to say that you know, they're no, there's no blame to share there, you know, certainly uh, that's, that's a fair uh, assessment, but, you know, there's still a lot more, I think that needs to be uh, looked at and figured out how nursing homes can better prepare to handle something like this in the future. Cause as you said earlier, you know, viruses aren't going away. Um, you know, nursing homes are going to c- continue to be, you know, ground zero. And if something like this, you know, happens again, so, you know, what, what are the lessons learned and, you know, who's, who's, who's looking at that right now, besides just trying to, put all the blame on the governor, which I don't, I don't know, maybe, maybe, maybe that's uh, all there is to it. Well, it's in probably a good opportunity to transition to talk about the, the big news that just came in uh, late this week that uh, the state assembly is opening up an impeachment inquiry into uh, the, the governor, uh, the nursing home thing, uh, which we've talked about before is another example of the cover up probably being worse than the crime. I think the the decision that he made at the time uh, in retrospect probably cost lives. I'm not sure there were a lot of good options at that point, but uh, I, I think he made a decision. But then I think the attempts to, to hide the numbers after that are, are, are ended up being uh, a real problem for him politically right now. But also we had a, 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 the latest 
person stepped forward to accuse him of um, inappropriate behavior. This allegation, uh, Vera, was a little more serious than the other ones. And I think what I, I wonder with the state assembly, if it wasn't a last straw that, you know, here's one more, which I think made six, eight accusations to, uh, to women that have stepped six. forward. Uh, six. Okay. And, but it also was a little more serious than the other allegations because it involves uh, an, an act that's actually under investigation right now by the Albany police department. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, we, the governor's real problem. He's, he's, he's got a real problem now, doesn't he? I mean, I think this, this, this um, uh, Fred Thiel, who is our local state assemblyman, uh, came out last night and said that that he's in favor of of this impeachment investigation and thinks it's it's this has just become something but that did has not to call be dealt for with. his resignation. Right. Right. He wants the investigation. He but he's he's made the point that it's that it's just difficult for government to even operate under this kind of dark cloud. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, when I think of all of this, I just think about how we you know, how we all kind of turned to the governor at this time last year um, and just the role he played with his uh, his fireside chats, you know, um, as, as a journalist, that was the only place to get the numbers from, you know, like how many people died today? And, and he held so much power because he was the only one who was giving us that information, you know, um, people are watching from all across the country. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, a lot of people didn't feel like they were getting information from from their states or certainly not the federal government. And, uh, you know, yeah, it's sort of, you know, you look at all of what's happening now in light of that. And it's, you know, it just it makes you reassess what what, you know, what happened then, what you, you know, the information you were getting then. But, um, but it's just I think, you know, one of the things that I, I we experienced and continue to experience, frankly, in covering uh, the the response locally to the to the pandemic, is that there's a, there's a real. I'm gonna I'm going to parse my words carefully here because I want to be diplomatic. But there's a real tension about how much information comes out locally, and it's clear that the fear is that there are repercussions up the line all the way to the governor's office if you if you fail to provide the necessary fealty to the governor's office in releasing that information. And, and there was an article in The New Yorker this week uh, that talked about um, a smear campaign that went out against uh, one of the accusers against the governor, who was a former uh, uh, someone who worked in, in, in government. And it, it demonstrates that, you know, that that article made the point that the governor's office has a temper and has a willingness to take out uh, aggression on on people that that run afoul of the governor's office. I think we see the results of that every day in what we do in trying to report even on a local or regional basis. And it, it's really not a good way to run government. Um, has anybody else experienced that? I know we definitely Well, you could have. see the way he feuds with the mayor of New York City. Mm -hmm. You know, we all see that. Yeah, and there's... A, it, yeah, it's I, a, I think, thank, thank, thank goodness that we've had, you know, good local state officials like, you know, um, Fred Thiel that we, we talked about earlier and, and back, you know, Ken Laval when he was senator and now Palum, current Senator Palumbo, who 
who have helped, I think, in, in the past year, but but even before then have helped filter some information down to to the local newspapers. They they realize perhaps our role better um, than the governor's office does and, and help us to get some of that stuff. I don't know where we'd be without that, because I think you're right, Joe. I, I think getting information from the governor's office being, um, you know, a local community newspaper is is pretty difficult. I've made this, I've told this anecdote before the, the, they refer us to the governor's press line and say, send us an email to this press line. Uh, I sent an email to that press line saying, does anyone even answer, does anyone even look at this email address and never got a reply? So uh, I, I think it's part of the problem. Joe, have you, have you experienced this kind of issue? Yeah, it's, it's tough to try to get, you know, us as, you know, community papers trying to get info direct from the governor's office is like almost impossible. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, really before, before this kind of started, I mean, you know, we really didn't have much uh, interaction with the you know, state government's office, you know, what, you know, the state government's not really what, you know, we're doing day to day basis. You know, we're focused on, you know, the local towns, um, the county to a larger extent and uh, you, know, you didn't really have much interaction with, you know, the governor's office and, um, but, but so this pandemic was really, really kind of changed things where we had to sort of focus in on that state government to get information. And um, so it's been been definitely different, uh, di- different year in that respect in terms of, you know, where, where we have information with the governor in the paper almost every single week. Where, Absolutely. You know, yeah. I mean, we would never really have that. You know, we would write a little bit about, you know, maybe something from the state of the state that was interesting to us. And, you know, but like other than that, I mean, state state government politics, you know, wasn't really something we were focused on at all. But but to, but to Joe's point, and, and, I, and you know, I, I agree, and I, COVID, COVID aside, to Joe's, Shaw's point, um, you know, even trying to deal with the DEC um, o- over the last few years, where where I can remember a time where, where there were spokespeople for departments like that, highway departments, um, you know, DOT, uh, DEC, where there were people you could call that were, were state officials in, in those different departments, and they would be happy to speak to you and you could quote them and, you know, and give you the, the background on stories that you were working on, um, you know, road improvements or DEC investigations, that type of thing. That over the last few years, I, I think that that, that access has, has slowed down. And, and, you know, again, as Joe Shaw said, perhaps because of uh, you know, fear of repercussions from from the governor's office, which seemed to want to take a, you know, a, a strong, a strong lead on, on any dealings with the press. But that then that included not dealing with the press, which, you know, which is which is odd. And, and again, I mean, um, the local legislators, lawmakers have helped um, bridge that gap, I think. Stony Brook being part of the SUNY system also fell under that as well. I think they they felt the pressure from above. I, I think Carissa and Vera, the point you raise is a really interesting one about. So we're all sort of and I and I think uh, Governor Cuomo got this reputation at a national level. I mean, he was starting to be talked about um, as, you know, a, a leader of the type. I mean, he wrote a book about leadership in the middle of the, the, the crisis. And uh, he had a lot of good press uh, throughout the crisis. And I think it was well-earned. I think he really did provide some excellent leadership uh, during a uh, time when we really needed it here and, and the nation really needed to see 
how it could be done well. That doesn't change the fact that we may have to reevaluate some of this now with the, the allegations that have come out this week. It's, it really does change. We, we have to revise our, our views a little bit of the governor. And I, I don't know that that means ignoring all the good, but it means that there's a context we have to put it all into now. Absolutely. Um, but I just wonder, was maybe the bar very low because we were getting such little information from the federal government or were we just we just wanted anything, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, maybe the governor saw that void and and seized on it. And to his credit, he stepped into it. But yeah, he did. He did. Well, he stepped into it. And I don't want to I don't I don't want to dismiss all the good work he, he did. But, you know, you, you talk about him writing a book in the middle of it, and he definitely had his eyes on on, on, on Washington and, and on where he would be after after he was done being governor of, of New York. I think that's certainly all over now. But um, that certainly was 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 part of that. Those daily briefings. Um, well, while I think Vera's right. They provided a real sense of comfort for everybody watching those. But but they were they were certainly if not intended, um, you know, they they were certainly taken advantage of to put him in that national spotlight. I mean, there's politics and everything, even in a pandemic, right? I mean, he won an Emmy for his for his <laughs> daily briefings. I mean, you know, it it, it was. It, I mean, I think it was part of what we needed to get through the crisis, no question. And and I, I guess it's these days. Politics is really very black and white, and it's difficult to, to talk about nuance. And I think Governor Cuomo is the embodiment of nuance. I've I've always said to my friends from out of state uh, who've said, oh, wow, and, you know, this is a guy that that we should we should maybe think about running for president. And my answer was, eh. I don't know. I, I have my reservations about Governor Cuomo. There's a lot of tendencies there that that concern me. Uh, and this is long before any of this stuff came out. And um, I, I do think the brand has been damaged. Let's yeah. put it that yeah. way. There was there was an interesting, interesting article about a couple of weeks ago already at this point. Um, I think in the New Republic, maybe kind of comparing the TV Cuomo uh, versus print Cuomo, because, you know, there have been a lot of issues over the years with you know, various kind of s- scandals, I guess you could say, or concerns, you know, from the governor's office. And they're all kind of things that were s- tough to sort of put into context for people to kind of really get a hold of and, and, and kind of understand in a quick 30 second news clip where you couldn't really just sum it up in a way that somebody would be like, you know, really sink in, you know, where you didn't have that kind of victim pointing kind of thing. And, um, you know, I think a lot of print uh, journalists who covered the governor pretty closely up in Albany, for sure, you know, would have a lot of different stories of, you know, different things that, you know, the, you know, that made it tough uh, working up there around the governor's office that, you know, don't come through when you watch TV briefing. Um, and so I thought that, that was kind of interesting, kind of comparing those two worlds of how we kind of view uh, the governor um, and uh, just an interesting viewpoint for sure. It's going to be an interesting story moving forward. No question. This is Behind the Headlines uh, on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw, the co-host uh, from the Express News Group. My co-host, uh, Bill Sutton of the Express News Group. With us today, Joe Workmeister of the Times Review Media Group, Carissa Katz of the East Hampton Star, and Vera Chinise of Newsday. Um, Carissa, let's talk a little bit about 
uh, something a little more local, uh, which is the political situation in East Hampton town, which got kind of interesting this week. Uh, Peter Van Skoyak, who's the supervisor, um, doesn't appear uh, that he's going to have a Republican uh, opponent in the upcoming election this year. But that doesn't mean he's going to necessarily have uh, a clear path uh, to reelection. Well, yeah, so the Republicans um, did announce on Wednesday that they had nominated a, a, a candidate for supervisor. Um, we haven't had a chance to find out too much about him yet. Um, his name is Kenneth Walls, and he um, used to be a motel owner in Montauk. Um, so he's been in the news a little bit. Um, he, I think he was also involved in the Long Island, um, I'm going to get this wrong, and maybe Vera knows better that the Long Island Tourism Bureau or something, I probably have their name with that wrong. So, so he does have a Republican opponent in name. We haven't um, had a chance to inter sit down with him and interview him. But the more interesting is that Jeff Bragman, a, a Democratic town board member who the East Hampton Town Democratic Committee declined to nominate for a second run for councilman, has decided he's going to mount a primary challenge to Ben Skoyak on the Democratic line. So is that unusual in East Hampton Town? Um, well, it's happened a few times over the over the past couple of election cycles that people have um, you know tried collected signatures, forced a primary, and then put it out to the voters of the party to decide who um, who will run. I think that in each case. It's come down to the, the person that the committee has nominated has prevailed in those primaries. Um, but, but Jeff Bragman, who's feuded quite a bit with Van Skoyak on the board um, and definitely been an independent voice despite being part of the, um, you know, the, everybody on the board was elected with Democratic support, um, but has been an independent voice there. Now he's going to see what voters think about him replacing Ben Skoyak at the top of the ticket. Talk about that a little bit. What are, what are the issues that Jeff Bragman um, staked out a different position than the party line and, and the supervisor's position on? Well, one of the things was the South Fork wind farm and um, their uh, the proposal to, to land the um, export cable from the wind farm at the Wayne, at the beach at Wainscott. Um, he really wanted to wait until all of the federal review was complete before the town signed off on the easements required to land that cable there. Um, the board voted to go ahead regardless. He, he voted against it. Um, so that was, you know, that was certainly a big one um, in Wainscott. And that also dovetails with Wainscott's effort to incorporate it as its own independent village. Um, uh, and that that's something, Vera, uh, I know you've been following is the Wayne Scott Incorporation. Uh, and there was a big uh, decision made this week as far as that goes as well, right? Yes, the supervisor uh, rejected uh, their petition to hold a vote, which uh, under state law, it is solely the supervisor's decision, not a town board decision. Um, and he has very strict criteria to look at as to whether or not the petition is valid. So he rejected it, which means um, there won't be a vote. The supporters have uh, 30 days to file an appeal or they could file um, another petition. Um, so he essentially um, blocked the efforts to hold a vote. 
Carissa, do you have any idea at this point what the plans are for uh, the incorporation folks? Do they plan to revise? Do they plan to uh, what, what's what's their what's the the thinking that that what they their next step might be? Well, they did indicate that they would sue, um, which isn't a surprise. They they could go back and um, and try to do the petition over. I think, Vera, it might've been in your story or it might've been in one of the stories that you guys had in the Express um, on 27 East, but, but um, Van Skoyak sort of said, well, you can take these criticisms and go back and do it all the right way. Mm-hmm. It can be into account. Um, whether they're gonna do that, whether they're gonna pursue some other legal avenue, but I think they seem very, determined to try to bring this to a vote. And I would be surprised if they let this um, stop, stop their drive to do that. I I think that's probably not that unusual, right? I I mean, I'm thinking, thinking, yeah, well, and, and, and even I think Sagaponic and, um, you know, before that, that, that there are always technical issues in, in, in the, in the petition that, that can be corrected. And, and I think that we've seen that before and, and, and the, you know, the, the uh, proponents come back and, and can adjust that. And then once those things are adjusted, if you think about it, if, you know, as, as, as Carissa just said, the supervisor said, these are the issues. If you fix these issues, you know, then, then you might have a, a clearer path toward, you know, toward a vote. Um, so, so I, I think it was probably not unexpected and probably there's there's a way to push through it. We'll see. It's going to be interesting to see because the, the Wayne Scott application really is centered on the, the wind farm and, and the uh, power line. Uh, that's really what's driving this. And we saw uh, you mentioned East Quag. That was a, an incorporation effort that began in opposition to uh, the golf course resort project mm-hmm. in their midst. And it failed because of that as, as a one issue sort of effort. And I think the proponents always say it's not. And I, right. I you know, in Wayne Scott, obviously they say it's not as well, but very clearly it's being driven by, by the one issue. I think those one issue villages, it's a very difficult thing to pull off. Although Sagaponic kind of did because their whole point was to block another incorporation effort that was, was more regional in nature. Um, so, uh, you know, I find I find this whole thing interesting because it's difficult. To, it's they they make it difficult to create a new village on purpose. It's it's a hard process to get through. They uh, dissolve more often than they're formed in New York State. Yeah, absolutely. And some people dissolve after forming. I, there's another aspect to this that I want to explore, uh, Joe, which is. You know, we talked a little bit about Jeff Bragman um, running in East Hampton town, uh, running a primary possibly for supervisor and that being driven to some degree by his position on the wind farm. The wind is is wind becoming uh, a political issue now in in local elections. I mean, is it becoming sort of a hot topic about that that can drive voters one way or the other? Um, have, you, have you seen any evidence of that up your way? Let's put it that way. Yeah, not not, not really that I can think of. Um, has it been more unified up there that 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 people are supportive, or is it just that it really hasn't come up so much? Well, solar issues become an issue up 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 on the north Fork. Right. Yeah, there's a lot of solar, solar farms. Um, you know, so there's a lot of uh, different places in Calverton where it's, we have new place, you know, new farms uh, proposed that are coming in. So there's a lot of, um, a lot of review being done on some of these uh, solar farm um, 
proposals. And uh, so, you know, that's kind of been, I guess, the, the bigger topic in, in Riverhead uh, more so than maybe wind. And, and does it have, uh, you know, folks on both sides? Is it kind of a political hot issue? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the question, you know, in, in Riverhead is really just how much is too much, you know, um, you know, are we committing too much land to this? And, you know, you know what is this going to look like in 10, 15, 20 years? Um, you know, so I think there's been some concerns about, you know, you know the commitment to it uh, long term and, and, you know, what uh, just with, you know, the, the uncertainty of, uh, you know, what what it may look like, you know, down down the line and. And, and what happens to the panels when they're decommissioned? Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, you have all these panels, you know, they're going to break down. What happens with them when they're done, you know, so. You see a lot of solar farms popping up, though, throughout the region. Um, I know up in Connecticut and Rhode Island, there are there are some pretty visible um, solar farms. And I feel like this is going to be an issue that becomes more and more important as we move forward. I think alternate energies. Uh, are going to be important everywhere, but I think in this region in particular, it's going to be something that we have to we have to keep uh, on the front burner all the time. Fair enough. <laughs> okay, we'll leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, that um, East Hampton Town last Thursday um, they approved a climate emergency declaration. Many other municipalities across the country have done that, um, and one of, including New York City. And one of the things that that entails is a commitment to shift to renewable energy sources. So I, you're right that this is going to become more and more of an issue. How, what kind of renewable energy sources? Where do you put them? Um, how do they affect the communities they're in? How do you dispose of them as the technology changes? How do you, you know, grapple with a changing technology? Um, so this is not this is not an issue as climate change becomes um, more prevalent. This isn't an issue that's going to go away for our area, especially. Yeah, I absolutely think that's true. Um, so let's we have a couple minutes left. Let's talk about uh, looking forward. Uh, what stories are we working on for next week? Joe Borkmeister from the Times Review Media Group. What, what's a what's a story on your budget for this week? Well, you know, this weekend is, uh, find this hard to believe, it's opening day for uh, high school football. Mid-March, opening day of high school football. (laughs) (laughs) Super strange. But, yeah, it's it's interesting. We have, um, you know, we used to have. uh, That means Halloween's right around the corner, right, Joe? Yeah, I know. Thanksgiving's coming up. Yes. Um, You know, we used to, we had four high school football teams out here that we would regularly cover and uh, as this uh, kind of strange abbreviated season starts uh, we're down to one uh, which is kind of kind of crazy you know we had uh, the Greenford football team uh, opted not to play this year just you know with everything going on um, I think they just kind of felt like they weren't gonna have the numbers and just wasn't going to be worth it um, you know we used to have again Mercy which obviously closed down a couple of years ago so they're you know that's gone and then Riverhead which is you know kind of always been our mainstay they've had uh uh, a failed budget and, and sports uh, cut and have no fall teams this year. So we have no football team there either. So we're down to one football team with uh, Shore and Wade and River. So it makes things easier, I guess, coverage wise to only have to worry about one team playing, but football uh, season season, getting season, underway. season kicks off this weekend. Actually, I think That's tonight, it. the first games are tonight. That's exciting. Actually, <laughs> Vera, what are you working on for uh, the next couple of days and into the coming week? 
Sure. So uh, 2020 saw the uh, a record year for CPF revenue. That's, uh, as uh, I'm sure you all, all the listeners know, is a tax on real estate transfers. Um, so a 79% increase on the East End. Uh, over the previous year, so um, so the towns have specifically the South Fork towns have um, all this money for preservation. Um, so looking at how they're going to spend it, but also talking about how um, Assemblyman Thiel, uh, this he sponsored a bill uh, about two years ago at this point that was approved by the legislature but vetoed by the governor to levy an additional half percent tax on those um, and use it for affordable housing. So just kind of looking at um, all that money that could have been raised for affordable housing that won't be, um, while, while now, you know, the housing crunch on the South Fork is worse than ever. Um, mm-hmm. And just kind of looking at that juxtaposition. Very timely topic, no question. Carissa? So, somewhat related to that, one of the stories we have in the works has to do with that housing crunch and how it's affecting people on the lower end of the income spectrum. Um, and uh, you know the, the challenges that they face as as uh, you know trying to trying to avoid well, the evictions they still are still on hold, but um, just all the personal cost of that. So yeah, no at the question. same time, we're looking at you know what's what do people expect for this season from a real estate perspective, but asking people who've been on the short end of that stick how they're coping and and managing through this challenging um, rental market. Yeah, we look forward to reading that. It's going to be some interesting stuff. So uh, that's all the time we have for Behind the Headlines this week. Uh, I do want to add a, a personal note. One of the things we'll be working on, sadly, this week is a, a feature obituary on my good friend and our colleague, Phil Keith, who was a columnist for us. Uh, his Mostly Right column ran uh, for about a decade in our papers, uh, and he passed away this week, and he will be missed. So uh, thank you to all of you for joining us this morning. Uh, Joe Workmeister of the Times Review Media Group, Carissa uh, Katz of the East Hampton Star, Vera Chinise of Newsday, and of course, my co-host Bill Sutton of the Express News Group. Thank you all. Uh, and we'll be back here next weekend. <laughs>